0: So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet,
1: it's time. I'm Krista Tippett,
0: and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Natalie Jrojan. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts. And as always, at onbeing.org.
2: Good evening, everyone. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here tonight. My name is Kate Nordstrom, and I'm the curator and the producer of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra's Liquid Music Series. Um, So this is our first time partnering with On Being, and we are really, really thrilled to have this conversation tonight with one of our artists, Natalie Joachem. It's the first of two conversations we'll have this season. The second is with Teju Cole on May 30th. So if you haven't signed up for that, I hope you come back. Um, Teju is a a writer and a photographer, incredible, incredible artist who will be doing some work with us at the Walker Art Center. But tonight, um, Natalie Joachem is a flute player and a composer. Um, she's a vocalist and a very incredible individual. We've been working together on a project called Fum de e- E.T. I always stumble saying that, Fum de E.T. Um, this project is a very personal one of Natalie's. Um, we've been, the, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and Liquid Music have invested in her for the past year as our art, artist in virtual residence. So she's been building up a body of work. Um, she's been researching this, this project, sharing her research. And sharing the development of this work with our audience. So now we're really happy to have her live, not virtual, tonight to share um, about this project with you, and also about her life as an artist, um, and uh, the world premiere of of this uh, event that has been we've been building up. Uh, the world premiere is in March. March. 14th at Amsterdam Barn Hall. So it all culminates in a couple months. So we'd love to have you there, um, and you can go to the Liquid Music website to learn more. So um, a few pieces of housekeeping: uh, we want to make sure that your cell phones are off, um, or at least that the um, sound is off. So if you want to tweet something or t- or take a picture tonight without sound, that's okay. Um, but no sound. And then also on the sound front, please make sure that you're not getting up to get food in the middle of this because we are um, recording for potential broadcast. And also this is, going, this is on Facebook Live, I believe, tonight, right now, um, but recorded for future broadcast consideration. Uh, I want to thank the Minneapolis residents Downtown Hotel. Let me start over. Residence, Minneapolis, Hotel, yes, at the depot as our hotel sponsor, and thank Life Water as a sponsor for Liquid Music, as well as Agriculture, who provided our food back and back. I think that's it. Um, thank you to on being Lily Percy, too. And now we're going to start with some music from Natalie. Um, she will pre- uh, perform for about 10 minutes before the conversation gets underway. So please help me in welcoming Natalie Joachim.
3: Mwemaladun <tries> kouche m'ha bon Dieu. Ponje bon galam
0: Hello, <laughs> um, welcome everyone to On Being on Loring Park, and welcome especially to Natalie. Thank you, thanks for having me. Um, this is actually where we work, and the studio is back here, and we don't do this very often anymore because um, we're growing, but this, we actually moved all the desks downstairs for this tonight, so normally there are workspaces here and a big table where we eat lunch. And isn't it, isn't it beautiful to have music in here? <laughs> and your voice just filled the space. Thank oh, you. Thank you. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think we'll just start. Um, thank you to Kate. Thank you to the SVCO and Liquid Music. We've just, we love this partnership. We're so excited. And as I said, we, we, we realized that we can't move the desks out all the time anymore because we actually have to get work done. <laughs> oh, this, was what, this was worth it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So, welcome to Minnesota. I looked at your Thank Twitter you. feed today. I think, oh. You, you were looking at the weather report, kind of
1: disbelievingly. It was, uh, I had to refresh a couple times to make sure, I was like, surely there <laughs> is a malfunction with this negative oh, yeah. number. <laughs> <laughs> but you see how hardy we are. Yeah, yes, I know. <laughs> I'm actually glad to see the room filled because the New Yorker in me is like, uh, I don't go out in this weather normally. Yeah. And certainly the Haitian in me is like, no, yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, I would like to start um, where I always start my conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how you would talk about um, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood, however, however you, would, you would describe that.
1: Sure. Um, it's an interesting question, I think, for me. Um, I, today, I don't really uh, consider myself a religious person, though I do consider myself a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up was interesting. My dad actually uh, went to seminary school. Oh, for a very long time, yeah. Uh, before meeting my mom, was he Catholic? Yes. Oh, okay. And um, so I almost didn't exist as a <laughs> result of religion <laughs> because of religion. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I guess the the human side of him got got the better of him eventually. Better, <laughs> um, my mom was I guess that irresistible. But um, yeah, so religion was an interesting thing growing up for us. It was we went to church. Um, when we were very young, Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think that once we came in, as we started to get older and started questioning it, my parents were not, they didn't force it on us. It was sort Mm -hmm. of like, we were like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go to church anymore, and so um, it's interesting in that, you know, I did go to Catholic school. I should mention that, very young. Um, But, yeah, (laughs) I think, you know, once um, that sort of wore off or we started to get curious about other things, we were sort of allowed to um, think about it otherwise. But uh, certainly both of my parents really have always instilled a sense of spirituality in us. Um, And I don't, I guess, think highly of myself enough to think that I Know how all of this world is controlled, right? So, to me, there—I I do believe in some sort of higher being that's guiding us and that has brought us all here today. And um, and I don't know. There are too many, too many beautiful things that happen in this world for for me to think that I guess that we're all responsible for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do uh, think about that, and certainly this project has got brought me back to thinking a lot about um, spirituality in a very different way than I thought of it in my childhood. From from
0: being in Haiti. Um, I mean, you know, I also wonder if music, it it sounds, I mean, music I know is part of Haitian culture. It sounds like it's woven throughout the experience of being with family for you. Um, And I wonder if you would even maybe not think of it that way, but if music would be something you would talk about as part of the spiritual
1: element of your childhood of your of your life. Yeah, I mean, you know it's so interesting because um I music has always been a part of my life as you mentioned not not just because I'm Haitian but but also because I was very drawn to it as a child. Um and I do think that many of my most spiritual moments have been experienced through music, um, in that it moves you in a way that you oftentimes can't explain. And I think I find that to be a spiritual experience myself. Um, And I definitely, you know, so many of the songs that I've been including in this project Really uh, do connect back to spirituality um, in that many of them, like the one that we just heard, uh, is called "La Mise Douce, is really a song that came over to Haiti from Africa. It was mm-hmm. really it's a it's a very old song. The rendition that I sort of fell in love, when it, it w- in love with is one by a woman named Toto Bissant, who um, is sort of one of my muses for this project, mm-hmm. um, and I. I love the spirit of it. And I I can't possibly sing that song and not feel like I'm having um, a, a spiritual experience. So it's still so I, I do very much connect music to spirituality in my own life.
0: You know, one of the things you've talked about is um, that this part of Africa where the Haitian people, where slaves were brought in the 16th century, um, uh, that one of the traditions there is is Yanvalu, and this was new to me, um, and I don't know if, if you're Muse, um, but you, you've made this striking statement that you said Yanvalu music is to Haiti as the Negro spiritual is to America. It, it certainly is. New information.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, again, I think Partly why I wanted to start with that song is because it's so iconically Haitian, but um, really that the message of that song works in very much the same way as the Negro spiritual, Um, in that at face value, the words themselves are quite innocent. Um, But as we know, so many spirituals were sung in cotton fields as a way of spreading messages and um, as a way of... um, letting people know that there was going to be a way to lift themselves out of misery. Uh, La Misee Pas Douce actually translates to, misery is not sweet. Mm. And um, it was a way of simply stating that I'm not well at this moment and I'm in this place, but I'm not of this place, Mm. and I plan to find life elsewhere. Um, And that to me is such a song of revolution uh, and really is one of the predecessors to the Haitian Revolution and a song, one of many songs that I think did empower and help uh, sort of covert messages be spread among slaves.
0: Mm. Now, you are known. Um you are a flautist. You play mm-hmm. the flute. And I just wanted, to, you know, you, you said that your first instrument was piano and that you were terrible at it. Very bad. I'm not sure I believe Still that. Still very bad. <laughs> My first and only instrument was the flute, and I was really terrible at it. <laughs> but you and you said that you fell in love with the flute, and maybe you're going to play the flute for us a little I later, are you? Um, <laughs> tell, so tell me about that love affair. Like, what, did, what do you love about the flute? I'd like to hear it and your, how you would describe it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Honestly, to me, it is, of the instruments, it is the closest to the human voice, I find. Mm. Um, I really feel like the way that we create sound, the way that we get our instruments to sound is, you know, extremely natural and comes, and has so much to do with your breath and your body um, in a way that ha- is very different than I think other woodwind instruments are, certainly, and, and. It, also you know other instruments where you're not really using your breath and articulation mm. in that way so to me i think i was fascinated because i was like you can use your breath to do what you can you can get you can get this instrument to to do what and it's no wonder that it's one of the oldest instruments around people have been making flutes since they I've right, figured out how to make anything, so um, I think that that's no wonder to me because to me it's an extension of my body, it's an extension of my voice. It's such a, it's very just connected to my physicality in a way that feels quite natural. So when I first heard the sound of the flute. It was easy to be drawn to, I think probably in retrospect, because using my voice was something that I was so used to and like found so much joy and love in growing up as a child. And mm-hmm. so it was not a far leap, <laughs> I guess. It was kind of an extension of that, of,
0: uh, of your voice.
1: I mean, I think that for me, it was the way that you think about phrasing and the way that you um, think about approaching a piece of music to me when i sit and look at a piece i have to think so clearly like how would i sing this how would i sing this and then that translates very easily to my instrument and maybe that's not unique to flutists i'm sure that there are lots of um, of musicians who sort of think you know if you're playing a trans- transcription of a schubert song or something i don't know like you're you're often thinking like how or like the many millions of Opera arrangements that there are out there. Um, you're always thinking, you know, how would a, how would a vocalist do this? And to me, it feels so easy to say, I, not just how would a vocalist do it, but like let's do it, and then let's do that through this instrument. Mm. And it feels like an extension of me. Mm.
0: Mm. You 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 were um, you were interviewed. Um, someone asked you, what is your least favorite thing about the flute? And you said, when people see me with a cellist or bassist and ask, aren't you glad you play the
4: flute?
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, it's true. It, just, it happens on the New York City subway it, quite often. It does? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's. it's also just like... In a way, it's like I'm very glad I play the flute for so many more reasons than that it's small and can that it's easy to move room. around. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs>
0: um, so here we are. We're speaking in St. Paul, and um, you, you're part of this liquid music project series at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and um, your project is Femme the Iti. Tell us what that is. Tell us the origin story.
1: Yes. So yeah. um, I actually love this story, um, and really, because it's so rare as a musician, as a creator, as a composer, that um, you find people to invest in ideas before you even really have a clear idea of what the idea actually is. Um, and this project started very much in that way. Um, Years a couple years ago now, I was having a casual conversation um with my father and my stepmother and uh And they live in Haiti now, correct? They do about eight months, all of the cold weather months. So about eight months out of the year (laughs) (laughs) down there. Mm -hmm. Um they managed to swing through in the fall and sort of late spring and early summer, but Mm -hmm. um yeah, they spend they live predominantly down there um most of the year. But We were having a a casual conversation um, about music in Haiti. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. And when people think of Haitian music often, uh, like for me, what comes to mind when I think of like what's popular, artists that are popular, there are tons of like, basically Haitian compa music is like a very big thing there. So um, there are all these bands of like 10 dudes, 12 dudes, just like Groups, huge groups of men like coming together to make music. There's every once in a while, there's like one woman in the band who like sings backup vocals or something, but like not mostly the sort of icons of um, Haitian music, like the popular bands that every, if you're gonna know one Haitian band, it's like definitely a band that has 14 dudes in it. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, and so I started thinking about that and because it's such. A distinct contrast to my actual experience of music in Haiti, um, which you know we mentioned. My grandmother, she, you know, we sang songs often together. Um, and I mean, just the way the way music is woven into the everyday. Exactly right. So uh-huh. it's it's a really it's really a big challenge to walk through the countryside of Haiti and not hear women's voices. That's really what you hear. You hear women's voices like working, cleaning their houses, doing the laundry, walking with kids, cooking, like that's, and to me, that was my, my growing up too, you know, like even my, I have such funny memories of my mom just like blasting Haitian music on Sunday when she'd be cleaning the house. And that was just, that was just what was going to be happening was that there was going to be like singing throughout the house. So, um, It was interesting to me that there were so few female voices represented in popular Haitian music. Um, And that piqued my interest, of course, That also is not really unique to Haiti, obviously, but once we kind of got into the conversation, my parents and I, it dawned on them because I was like, well, who are some female artists? I can think of one. How many can you guys think of? And they could really only think of about a dozen or so women in the past century, which is like... Very, very few. If you think of American music history, that would be astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> and who would we pick if we could only pick 12? Yeah. So um, so that was odd to me. Um, and of course intrigued me because I'm like, well, if there are so few, then there must be something very special about this few, <laughs> right? And so I started to look into them and I found some very beautiful music. And I also found these incredible stories of... Um, women who really use their voices as a tool, for the most part, for social activism, whether or not they themselves identified as social activists, but um, that really was what it boiled down to. So many of them wanted to use their voices to help lift the people of Haiti up to help empower the the people of Haiti to really fight for themselves and create a life that is better for them every single day. And so, for that to be the through thread, I was like, "Well, if there's only going to be about a dozen of them, it's pretty." That's a pretty solid. So was <laughs> that true? Were there just a dozen of them? There, there really are. So now, so I've now spent the past like year and a half, almost two years, really doing this research and there are maybe closer to like 20 or so, but there's definitely fewer than 30. So, and that's digging deep and like going everywhere. We can talk a little bit about the challenges of researching something. Yeah, you you wrote a a
0: diary, which was interesting. Travel (laughs) journal, yeah. So so there's the phenomenon of women singing all the time everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then there's this very small number of women who are known to be artists or who've made music a career. Right. Okay.
1: So, you know, I, it was interesting to me. So I was like, I want to find out more about these women. I want to find out how they connect to me. And I think that feeling stems from, especially in the past couple of years, feeling like such a strong sensation to connect to my own cultural identity, Mm -hmm. to embrace that and to um, celebrate who I am. Um, Certainly, being Haitian-American, I feel lucky in many ways because I have access to so many more years of my history than most African-Americans have. Um, and that's amazing. Haiti was the first um, free black republic, and uh, they really abol- were the first to abolish slavery. And um, the Haitian revolution was an epic thing to happen, um, in you know at the time that it happened. And, and so, for me, the fact that we have you know that much more time where we were able to hold on to our history, hold on to uh, keep record of who we are, how we got our names, where we came from, um, our fa- what land our family is from, and, and even being able to begin to trace back slowly but surely all the way to, ha- to Africa, that's something that like most Black people in America don't have access to. And for me, in the past few years, that's become a major um, it's become a really a, a thing that's very valuable to me, and uh, one that I feel that is my distinct responsibility to um, hold on to, and also for me to be able to pass on to my nieces and nephews someday. Family, like that's that's huge to me. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to find out more about these women, um, and Kate Nordstrom was. Nice enough to sort of reach out to me to say, you know, I was wondering if you'd be interested in bringing a project to Liquid Music. And uh, in my most studious way, I sent her an email back that had all of my, like, very all of my most polished (laughs) um, projects up front. And I was like, well, I could bring you this, 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 or that. And then way at the bottom of the email where I'm always sure nobody even reads that stuff, so I like to sneak stuff in there. Um, I was like, you know, I kind of have this idea. And this was just maybe a month and a half after I had this conversation with my parents. Um, I have this idea. And it's not really a thing, and I don't even know what I would do with it, but... It seems like it could be really interesting to start to dig into this a little bit more,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and lo and behold, that was the project that she latched onto, which is amazing. And um, you know, just to go back to my previous statement, I think it's very rare that you run into a commissioner, or presenter, um, or an institution that is willing to sort of take that risk with you, because for all we knew, I could have found nothing. The whole project could have been a dud. I could have just like had a few songs and not really much more to say. Um, and to be to me, to be gifted the time to explore um, to explore this as an option, as a creative option has been life changing honestly, and I think has allowed me for the first time to feel like I have found. A creative voice that feels so much of me. Mm. Mm. And this has been kind of the last year, the last. Yeah, a little more than a year. A little more yeah. than a year.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's been a tumultuous year in the life of the world. Yes, that's true. I, I, mean, I think we need to name this. <laughs> I mean, it's been a tumultuous week.
1: Well, it's year. been a tumultuous week.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's very stunning. Um, you know, one thing I'm thinking, though, before we get into this, um, when you talk about this, this desire and this passion to connect, you know, past and present and, and your deepest identity, um, so much of the fear and confusion and anguish and inequity that we're confronting now, that we have no choice but to confront, has to do with the repercussions of globalization as it has been enacted. But I think one of the most interesting, kind of a real paradox of globalization, too, is it's bringing us back to our particular identities. It's not doing away with that.
1: I, very and much This quest you've been on yeah. is also a quest of our time. I think that that's true, and, and... You know, to me, we are all doing each other a service in holding on to that right now, especially because the real challenge here is that we have so many people who just don't understand each other Mm -hmm. and therefore are scared of one another because we don't understand each other's histories. We don't embrace each other's histories as a human history. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really... um, that's a really big challenge to work through collectively um, as a global community. Um, and certainly as American citizens, I think it's, it's high time that we start looking at that. And, and I do think that each of us doing our part to really hold on to who we are and share who we are is mm-hmm. a very, oh, could potentially be a wonderful bridge to bringing us all closer together.
0: Yeah, here's something you wrote just to kind of set the scene of this moment in which you've inhabited as you were undertaking this investigation. I mean, this was the fall of 2016, I think you wrote. Um, As an artist, you sometimes forget that the forces of the world may from time to time bring your ability to create to a grinding halt. Because our creative work is so deeply tied to our inner work, it is easy to forget that the part of you that is human will need to find its way in spite of the part of you that is a workhorse. (laughs) This happened to me this past fall.
1: Yeah, Um, gosh. Well, fall 2016 was a very interesting one. Um, And I had just embarked on my Liquid Music residency. Mm -hmm. Um, And it hit me hard. The last election hit me very hard because I think, um, and the hurricane Matthew at the same time was right. Was that in October? It was in October, and, and then the, the election, election was right. in, in November. So, um, you know, my gosh. So my my father lives back in Haiti, and let's start with the hurricane. Um, He, my dad is a wonderful, wonderful person. I have to say, through my lifetime, he has put us through many, many a challenge of like days upon which we have no, or hours upon which we have no idea where he is or what might have happened to him. He used to work right next to uh, the Twin Towers, and so he, and he was at work for 9-11, so there were like this stretch of time where, where is he? That later, there was maybe the next summer, Pretty soon thereafter, 9-11, there was a huge blackout in New York, and nobody could figure out where my dad was <laughs> for many hours. And there he was like, oh, no, it's fine. I just had to walk across the bridge again. It was fine. Um, and then he w- was in Haiti again for the earthquake. Um, right, sorry, just, earthquake, yeah. W- well, we passed there. Oh, earthquake. and then? And then the hurricane. That's right. Not, there's so many. He's, he's a Trump, he's, he's a wonderful guy, but he has made my heart stop many times in this lifetime. And so, um, you know, I just, especially having been there so many times since the earthquake happened. Um, and that was in 2010. Um, Haiti is, you know, it's, it's a challenge. There's a lot, there's so much that still need, you'd be shocked because if, That happened in America, that the state of things were still, it's as if the earthquake, at least in Port-au-Prince, in many places, it's like the earthquake just happened yesterday. And so many people have had to just get by, um, really by helping one another. And so to hear about the hurricane broke my heart because, you know, I think in America we get, we are, we don't, actually always value the resources that are available to us here Mm -hmm. in America. We have a lot of work to do, but if you are homeless or hungry or need support in any way, there is actually an infrastructure to some extent that can help you. It doesn't always help you, but it's there at least. And thinking about Haiti, especially like my family's tiny, small farming village, which genuinely does not even show up on Google Maps. It's like a little blip that doesn't even exist. <laughs> um, it's hard to think about how, you know, it's, it's really those communities that have to come together to, to rebuild and help themselves. And so this hurricane had just happened, and I, it was weighing on me that I needed to do something to help because I know that there's always this global force. It's like, yes, of course, this, this natural disaster has happened. We're going to take care of these people. And then the help, when you go to these places, it just hasn't translated into actual help for real people. So I was mulling over. I'm like, I gotta get started working on this project, but I also feel so torn because I really wanna just help these people. Um, I wanna help my home community, if anybody, you know, because I, in, and when I finally got in touch with my dad to find out that he had taken in dozens of people into our own home to bring them into our house because they had nowhere else to go and we're the sort of we're sort of the only ones around in the community who have a home that's big enough who have space who have enough food we have more than enough to share Um, and so to relieve him of that burden to hear in his voice himself how much it hurt him because he wanted to do so much more than he could so I started to sort of get my wheel spinning on how I can make a a, a direct impact. Um, Then at the same time, like a few weeks later, essentially, the election happened, which really just gutted me. Um, It gutted me because although as an African American, I experience racism on a very regular basis, I experience and um, identify with, discriminatory discriminatory practices, it happens to me almost on a daily basis in my own life. Um, And to know that so many people supported someone who is, in my opinion, just so against my existence, my personal existence here, let alone my family, my friends, my colleagues, it hurt me very badly. And I know, you know, like so many people experienced a a sense of great sadness. Um, But to know that there were people rejoicing in what I thought was truly an awful thing to happen, Um, and something that that to me brought greater divide, because I think I've always been raised to be welcoming and open to everyone who comes into my life's path, and for a little while. I was genuine, genuinely disinterested with interacting with most people because mm-hmm. I got the sense that it was hard to know who you could trust around you, and that's a ter- that's a terrible feeling to carry around with you. No, so it's it's um, like what you're
0: saying is is terrible and heartbreaking, and so that's the context in which I say there's something refreshing about just talking about the hurt of it. Because we go so quickly to anger, and mm-hmm. and even so much of that energy that is dividing us is hurt, pain, and confusion that that yells and and comes out as hatred. And.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I if I speak honestly, my overwhelming feeling was certainly one of hurt and sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, far before anger, though anger came. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So in a way, it ended up being good for, for many reasons. One was that I took it upon myself to host a fundraiser, um, a CrowdRise campaign to raise money to rebuild um, the school in my fa- father's hometown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had a lot of conversations with my dad about how how can I help? What can I do? What what can be done? And the biggest thing to him was like, you know, so many of these people have lost their homes. And home is like a very wide spectrum of what we think of as home. Like for many pe- for many of these people their home was like a tarp over two sticks. You know what I mean? Like that's like that's actually where they live and it's in a beautiful field surrounded by amazing countryside. It's just like that's their home. So obviously uh didn't work work its way through a, a hurricane and so my dad was like, you know, the real problem is that the school, the school lost its roof. The school has all this damage to it. And he kept going back to the school. And I was like, but what about the people? And he was like, but the school is our only institution. It's the only place. It's not just a school. It serves as a mobile clinic. It's a place for people to go if they're homeless. It's like the only space large enough to house anyone if they really need it. Um, and so. That being sort of their only cultural institution, the center of the whole town was like, let's fix, let's fix the school, and from there the kids can go back to school. We can get some medics down here to have to restart the mobile clinic. Malaria after a hurricane is a really big concern because there's tons of like waterlogged everywhere, and so. Getting health services was important. Um, And that felt amazing to me, to be able to say, okay, Mm -hmm. let's work out how much money we're going to need to to fix this school, and we are going to get this school fixed. Um, And we ended up surpassing our goal by two times over, I think. We got almost double uh, what we set out to to get, which at the end of the day was about $10,000. It was not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So for me, that that was able to rebuild the school, um, provide meals for many of the people at the school. Um, we were able to rebuild a well that has been out of service since my dad, who is 76 years old, I think now. Since he was a child, it hasn't been working. People have had to walk miles to get to the nearest like, fresh water source, and we were able to rebuild the well. And that to do that in that time of feeling that much hurt was incredible. Um, and once that work was done and, you know, it was, it was amazing to me to be able to do that. Honestly, it was Mm -hmm. just like such an incredible feeling to see people say like, yes, we want to help you do this. And that it just didn't take that much to get it done.
0: So that rebuilding, that external rebuilding, that reaching out was also part of how you nurtured yourself.
1: 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, and then to finally... I think you know it wasn't then until maybe January or so that I got around to like writing my next blog post for this for this um, liquid music residency, and I was super apologetic to Kate, but that's where that statement came from because it was like, I just can't think about writing this blog or moving forward mm-hmm. with this until I do something in this world that makes a difference for real people. And this project is as wonderful as it is that it's highlighting Haitian culture and bringing it to so many people who know nothing about Haiti it feels a little too self-serving in a way. Oh, no, you know? yeah. It was,
0: it was beautiful and honest. Um, I mean, so, you know, here's, here's, here's what I'd love to hear, have you, like, unfold for us after the week we've just been through. Um, another time, another question you were asked once. Favorite place in the world? Haiti. My family is from there, so it represents love heritage, beauty, and tradition for me. So talk to us about Haiti, and let's like take those words. Haiti and love.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to be from a place with people who have so little and are so willing to give you everything. Um, Whatever they can, however they can help you, whether it's just a tiny bite of food, you would never walk into a Haitian person's home and not be offered food. And I'm talking about people who have nothing. They will run outside to grab a mango off a tree, if that's all that they can find, to make sure that they're, they're, they're helping you. Um, and they'll do anything to, to, really, to really support one another. And that is, to me, um, at the very core of what it means to be Haitian. Those are the people that I grew up with in my family. Certainly, my parents. Certainly, our family, friends, extended family, close colleagues who are, who are Haitian. I every single Haitian person that I have ever encountered is 100% like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's so easy to feel loved in Haiti. You know, um, it really is, and I think that that's something that extends far beyond family. It's just a cultural tradition, uh, and, and really about a cultural practice of giving. And so Still
0: love, love as an action.
1: It's yes. an action
0: orientation.
1: Absolutely, mm-hmm. and, and it's inherent. And to me, there's something very beautiful about people who can find it in themselves to love when Everything around them has crumbled, right? For me, on my hardest day, it's very hard to give, to continue to give to people if I feel emptied by the circumstances of my life at any given time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's something about the constant spirit, the like sort of can do spirit of like, even if everything around you has crumbled. There's a hope that you will find a way out of it, and the first step in getting that way, getting out of it, is by giving love, not by like seeking to take from anyone else, but by giving in the moment when you have nothing mm. le- left. And so, that as a practice, that as like seeing that in my parents and my relatives growing up, is something that I think has been instilled in me in a really beautiful way, and 100 um, percent. To me, is synonymous with Haiti. That that feeling, that mm-hmm. sense of, of giving and and sharing love. If that's all you have to give, is like to me distinctly what it means to be Haitian. Mm.
0: And what about um, Haiti and beauty? Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> um, Your writing from
0: there is so visual.
1: It's because it is. It's sort of you can't. I mean, very lush.
0: Yeah, it's
1: beautiful. It's just so beautiful and for me you know I do a lot of concert touring I've gotten to see a lot of the world Um, and I feel really lucky for that but I have to say that Haiti for me is one of the only places that I've been that hasn't that's like so much of the country is untouched by sort of like tourism or commercialism or anything like it hasn't been sort of most of the country has not been put into this sort of like Cookie cutter box of like here are pretty suburbs or whatever. Um, There's no gap. Yeah. <laughs> No, there is not. <laughs> I only, I only laugh so hard because if you could picture the actual marketplace in Haiti, it's like very much not the Gap. <laughs> I don't know why I chose the Gap, but you know what I mean. I love the Gap. We can all name the ten stores on every street. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but it's it's just so rich and lush and beautiful. There's um, the countryside. There, where there's just a lot of very, my family still lives on an active farm, and so there's just beautiful countryside. There's the beach that is like water, the color of the water you can't even explain to people, and the warmth of it is amazing. We do have one. Small mountain, but it is a mountain. So some people might call it a hill, but they, we do call it a mountain. Um, and so you know, you can go up in, into the mountains too. It sort of has all of the rich richness of terrain, and um, it's beautiful. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. And I have to say, um, I always think of Haiti because, especially you know, as these natural disasters are happening, I think of Haiti often because I'm like, you know. One awesome thing about being a poor person in Haiti is that you never you're never going to run out of food, right? There's always a coconut tree, a mango tree. There's always like there's always something and the, the land will mm-hmm. always give mm-hmm. to you, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um and that's an amazing thing. It's also terrifying when there are just like hurricanes happening left and right because it means that a lot of that natural landscape gets destroyed. And that's when you get into a real situation of like hunger or, or really worrying about people surviving in those circumstances. But I do think it's also a beautiful to thing to think about the fact that. For so, for hundreds of years, the land in Haiti has continued to give back to us. It hasn't left us behind. Mm -hmm. And so many of these songs actually, like, stem back to voodoo heritage and culture where, um, you know, there's voodoo spells, but there's also this, like, beautiful side of, like, storytelling and um, thinking of spirituality and that you're worshiping and being grateful for the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth because... I really think that in Haiti, it gives, it's constantly giving to you. It's something that has never left Haitian people behind. And so it's a beautiful place full of incredible resources. And I, I myself, have a beautiful home. I have a beautiful family home in Haiti. So you're all welcome to come. My dad himself, if he were here, would invite you for sure. <laughs> it sounds like he would. <laughs> um, so I wanted
0: to ask you about and the other two words in this, you know, the, the way you described your love for Haiti is heritage and tradition. You just mentioned voodoo and I, I just want to say, I was thinking, getting ready to speak with you, about a conversation I had a few years ago with Patrick Belgarde-Smith, who is a scholar. I mean, he's Haitian-American and also a
1: scholar. Like we might be related. My, Are, my well, I think mom's a, side of the family is Belgarde. Bellegarde. So.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know it's... Small a, place. <laughs>
0: Well, and he became a a scholar of of voodoo. Um, And, you know, that was when I learned that, uh, I mean, that voodoo is about so much. And it's, in fact, not about this image of crazy shamans sticking dolls into pins, that that actually came from a movie in, I think it was 1932. What? um, With Bella Lugosi playing a voodoo chief, and the, the movie was called White Zombie. And, you know, at that point, the U.S. Army was occupying Haiti, right, to control the popular uprising. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, you know, voodoo and Haiti are kind of synonymous in the American imagination from this ridiculous source.
4: hmm
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so, I, but so, so I'd be curious about... This project you've undertaken, um, and I know we didn't ever, you know, speaking about this moment, I mean, there's tumult around race and otherness. There's tumult around women. Um, I think a lot about, um, there's this young um, African-American, actually, uh, minister, who's one of our fellows named Jen Bailey, who likes to point out that the language of apocalypse in the Bible is actually, the meaning of that word apocalypse is an uncovering, hmm. which is also a way to talk about what we're in the middle of here. Certainly. Yeah, that we can't, things we can't not see anymore. Um, but some people are on a terrible blunt end of all that. Many people, um, so I digress. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious, like I'm living in this moment, being an artist, being a woman, being African-American, Haitian, um, and, and then going back there now and exploring music and women and this country. like how? What have you learned about your heritage and tradition, perhaps that you didn't know before or that you know more vividly now?
1: Um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that has been... There's been some beautiful music to come out of this, but to me, more than anything, the, the research aspect of this has been... Such an incredible learning process for me um, to really understand to go back to the beginning of history of Haiti. How did how do we get there? How did we become this place? And who are we? it's, uh, it's been an incredible moment of discovery for me. Um, learning about um, the music attached to Voodoo and that um, you know. I recently was able to meet with and interview uh, one of the women who's featured in my project. Her name is Carol Dermes-Men. She was telling me a little bit about the drumming patterns. These drumming patterns in Voodoo music are very well studied, all passed down as in an, in an oral tradition. And these
0: all come back from like six thousand years ago. Yes, exactly. And what we now think of as Benin, exactly right. right. Yeah.
1: So it's that's amazing to me that this is really a, a musical practice that's been around for a very long time. And teaching myself the different rhythms of like if it's this if it's this tempo and this pattern, that means it's this kind of song or it's about this kind of of, this is what you would use to set the scene for this type of story. And um, to me, I had I had no idea. I always knew that those were, that to me, to my ear, that signified Haitian music, but I'd never even thought of it as a cultural practice that's been around for so, so long. Um, so that has been one really amazing, um, you know, p- point of discovery for me as a musician, certainly. Um, but also just to learn a little bit about, um, to learn a lot more about the dictatorship that my parents left. You know, they were living in Haiti and immigrated to the United States in the 70s when it was a very challenging time. I think for the country, it was a a very rough time because essentially anyone who was a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an, an intellect of any kind who could empower Poor people or uneducated people um, were being executed left and right. That was a reality of like, and so there you have this very sad time where there's this like mass exodus of some of the most sort of. Uh, educated people of the country for fear of their own lives, really. Um, And learning more about that dynamic, uh, that dictatorship, understanding what it did to poor people and understanding that a lot of this music that I've uncovered was a threat in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Haiti has two national languages, Haitian Creole and French. um, And most people in the countryside um, speakation Creole. The more, the more educated you are, the more, the, the more likely, likely you were to have learned French. And in many ways, at that time, through the 70s, through time, really, that was used as a tool to keep the uneducated uneducated, to speak in French. And if they couldn't read it, and if, oh well. And if they couldn't understand it, oh well. And so many of these women going back and singing songs in Creole um using these me- these songs that were used as a way to s- have slaves share their messages okay. messages that are still very relevant today certainly they were 30 years ago certainly they were 100 years ago and so um that they were giving power back to the- back to people in that way and I think I never really knew I never really understood that much about um the real like lineage or history in a in a linear way, I think, mm-hmm. of Haiti. It's also the type of thing where I think similar to the Great Migration, you find in America, you find that there's a cer- there's a generation of African Americans who don't talk about what used to be, right? Who have like this memory of slavery, a memory of Jim Crow, a memory of segregation, and they just don't talk about it. I know so many African Americans who are like, I don't know, my grandmother just like literally will never talk to you me. No, I think that's that often
0: thing. true of the first generation after trauma. It was also true of that first generation of Jews after the Holocaust. Exactly right. Yeah.
1: And so the same thing is I think true of so many Haitians who left the country at the same time that my parents did where they talk to you about it, you know sort of vaguely, but they never tell you all of the history and Mm -hmm. so for me to be able to just really discover that and to discover these connections through music has been very eye-opening and explains to me so so much of of the history of how we got where we are uh, and why and who the players were and making it so that Haiti is what it is today what some people consider not so great but it's wonderful
4: yeah Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) um there's a there's a story you tell at, you, in your liquid music travel journal, which I'd recommend everybody go read online. Um, so, like for example, you went in the National Theatre. Oh my gosh! And so, I mean, that's kind of this both and, right? Because it, it's it's the both and. Um, so just tell you know describe that place mm-hmm. and and that that contradiction there. Yeah.
1: So my, you know, it's interesting to hear my parents talk about the Haiti of their childhood, what it would have been like to go to, like, to to think of the National Theater was this, like, beautiful, gorgeous place where so many of the most iconic um, concerts that people, live concerts that people can remember took place in Haiti. Um, And to visit it today You'd be very confused by the state of things. Um, the theater is in major disrepair. We—I I don't think, even think I was supposed to walk on the stage, actually, but I did anyway because I'm a rule breaker. But uh, <laughs> I didn't break my leg, so it's fine. Um, and when you're there, is a point actually when I—I I walked. Um, Inside the theater, I walked to the very top seat. It's sort of it's an amphitheater, like in the round, Um, and you can see out to the most gorgeous landscape. It's stunning. It's really beautiful. And to think of like this open air theater was this beautiful place where there's so much history. To get to the National Theater, we had to drive through a pretty crazy part of Port-au-Prince. Um, and I do think i don't I wonder if I did include a little video clip of like uh, on my blog of like what the street was like around, but there's just trash everywhere there's like it's just in disarray, the whole place is in disarray, and it's crazy to me like it was at that moment to experience being in such. A, and to me, a spiritual space, really, to mm-hmm. feel, you can feel the energy of the history of that space. Um, especially for, as a musician, to me, a concert hall is a place that I consider to be home. It's a, it's a safe space for me. So I like that feeling of being in a space where so many other musicians have shared their gifts. Um, and it broke my heart to see that, like, that part of town had become just, you know, not a place you want to be. Yeah,
0: you, you wrote, um, I mean, you wrote, you've described the, how, the, the gore, what was gorgeous and moving and, and exalting about it, and, and then you also wrote, as you left, you know, truth be told, my heart sank when we drove out of the dream gates into the nightmare streets covered in trash. There was literally a river of it. How did this happen to such a beautiful place? And I'd really like to know how you start to think through that question in your mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think Katie has been um, the victim of a very very many very long series of unfortunate circumstances, many of which were intentional. It's not easy being the first successful slave uprising. You can imagine that there were people who um, were pretty upset about that because slavery was an economy. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, to find out that like somebody could totally destroy your business was like, I mean, it's I mean, not to belittle it, but it was like Napster in the 90s when like, people could just get music. Like, who's going to make, They like, it was killing the record industry. That's a big problem for you. Um, and so to find out that your slaves could revolt and suddenly not do all of this work for free was going to hurt the pockets of very many people. And so... I think there, and you didn't want it to set an example. If certainly right. not. You didn't. You didn't want it, Anyone to get an inkling of an idea that yeah. they too could accomplish that thing. And so, um, I think that some circumstances have been unfortunate, natural disasters. That's the luck of the draw of where we are, where we landed on the on the map. You know. But I think certainly in terms of politics and economics, much of that was deliberate. Much of that had to do, unfortunately, with the United States sort of interjecting themselves. And, um, you know, even though slavery was gone, I think the effects of colonialism are still very strong everywhere, even right here. And so, um, you know, it does hurt my heart to see a river of trash and think, how did we get to this place? But then I also think about, like, where did all these bottles actually come from? And I think if you look at any of those labels, you're bound to see the United States on very many of them. Um, And so this idea of, like, having in, in many ways Haiti become dependent on the United States has left us in a pretty tragic state. And then you couple that with a handful of corrupt politicians not unique to to Haiti. They're all over the world, <laughs> um, and you have you have real people who are left in unfortunate living circumstances, mm-hmm. and so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we. I I do see hope in getting us out of that place. I think of it often, and I will say right now, I'm not the only. Person looking to connect to their heritage, as you said earlier. I'm certainly not the only Haitian American, and I know that there are so many Haitians of my generation who are doing the thing that I think is very important, which is going back, going back, identifying and like claiming our homes. Uh, reclaiming the language, reclaiming our space, and making sure that we don't lose that so that we can, you know, make up for this mass exodus of educated people who left a generation ago and make a di- begin to make a difference. And I do see it happening. I've experienced it myself in so many beautiful parts of Haiti. Um, and I find, I see hope in that. Mm.
0: So just maybe leave us with one more picture um, from your project, and this is um, of a person, and I want to say her name correctly, Emerante de Pradine. Emerante, yeah. Emerante, yeah. who, um, who died not long ago. Just a week ago. A week, a week ago. A little over a week ago now. Um, introduce us to her. It sounds like she was a very important person oh in this gosh. journey you've been on recently. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, Emerant was sort of the last uh, living icon of what was really known as Hades' Golden Age, a time where there was a huge um, coming up of, in the arts especially, music, literature, art, uh, was very active at at this time um, when she was sort of at the, the top of her career. So
0: when would would this have been? Mid twentieth century? Or... Uh,
1: yeah. Well, not, not quite early twentieth century. Early. Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. Mid ter- mid twentieth century. We're in 2018 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mid t- mid twentieth century. And um, she was in. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I didn't really know anything <laughs> about her before this project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was thinking of generationally, I wanted to make sure that I did enough research to, to span the ages, right? So there are still popular Haitian artists who are alive and working today, making music women, and, um, that of a generation ago, and then, you know, sort of not very many left from her generation. Um, and by a lucky stroke of circumstances, which I actually won't attribute to luck whatsoever. I feel lucky having had the opportunity to meet her, but really, meeting her and so so much of this project, again, I attribute to the openness and grace of Haitian people. Every aspect, if you, I dare you to go home and Google Haitian female artists, you won't find, you really just aren't either about, a handful of websites. There's just not a lot of information out there. There isn't this like wealth of resources to tell you about these women. And so for me to find them and learn really more about their real stories other than these few websites that I'm like, I don't know, is this even real? It's the internet. I don't know, this could not be true. So <laughs> so, um, so much of this involved my family, family friends, um, and just Haitian strangers being open to talk to another Haitian stranger. Um, And essentially, I was able to meet her through a roundabout circuit of people who were like, oh, yeah, you could go to her house. This, she, she's usually hanging out at this place at this, on this day, and then I showed up, and she wasn't and there. And she was, what, 93? She was 98 90, at 98, the time. She turned 99 right. in September. <laughs> yeah. So my in my mind, I was like, I'm never going to meet this woman. But we drove, we ended up finding out that she, ha- she had a music school in a super remote, super remote village, um, and we called somebody who worked at the school, stranger. And we're like, we're strangers. We just wanna myself, and my stepmom, and a family friend. And we're like, just wanna show up to the school. And they're like, okay, you got to drive to this town. You got to go there, and then stop at this house, and somebody will meet you at the car. And I'm like, guys, this sounds like I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> this is not I'm like we're gonna meet somebody and get in the car. So, so end up um, doing that. A young girl gets into the car, and she's like, "Okay, now you got to go around here." Blah blah. Takes us down these like un- totally unmarked dirt roads, and we walk into this building, and there she is. <laughs> there she is at ninety-eight years old, just standing there, an icon, a voice that so many Haitian people really value. There she is. I'm just standing it across from her, and she had also
0: left Haiti for a while, for a while. right, many and of them come did back.
1: It. She sure did. Yeah. Um and and that I, I think again is a trend that's really happening. Mm-hmm. So many people left Haiti because it because being educated and trying to use your voice to do anything that was going to educate others became a real challenge um of safety. And so she came to the United States. Um and she was a, da- a dancer actually for a long time and uh, ended up marrying her husband and uh, who I thought, I think taught at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe, yeah, he did for a very long time. And so, um, and then she eventually went, made her way back because she felt like it was her duty really to to take everything that she had learned in her life and go back and just give back to mm-hmm. Haiti. Um, that's why my that's why my parents have gone back. That's why I hope to go back. I think like people want to reinvest in, in, in the people. Um, and so it was amazing to me to be able to meet her uh, to know that in her old age, at ninety-eight, she was still giving back up to the very end um, at this music school, and she was like, "Yeah, sometimes the kids don't show up, but I always, I always have the lessons of it." She had her chalkboard <laughs> with all her, all of her stuff written out on it because, and she was very frustrated because she wanted to be doing good, and sometimes the kids showed up, sometimes they didn't. <laughs> um, but you know, and I'm, and I'm sad that I never got to go back and help her at that school because I would have loved to work with her at the school, but. What, oh my gosh. So, on last Saturday was when she passed away, and I got the message about her passing and like fell to the floor in my kitchen and felt a real sense of loss. Um, Because she was such an amazing spirit. To hear her talk about her life, to hear her talk about her connection to music, to hear her talk about her deep belief and pride in the people of Haiti. Mm -hmm. To hear her advice to me as a young woman trying to sort of make my way in the arts, um, to receive support and love from her in that moment, was a gift that I will forever be grateful for. And to have a recorded conversation with this woman, who was totally of sound mind. Like, she, we talked for hours, and it was amazing. Um, and she really had a, a wonderful memory also of, of and a fantastic way of storytelling. But that I have that as a gift, that I can go back and listen to that is, like, amazing. And that I can share that. Like, my hope is to be... Because to me, I'm like, this, this conversation should be in a museum. I was talking to my dad last night, because I was like, that was probably the last... Like interview that might have been the last interview she ever did. That wasn't at the end of July, and here we are, and she she just passed away. So it wasn't that long ago. It's such a gift. It's such a gift to me, Um, and I feel so so lucky to have known her and to have met her. And I know that every woman and family member of of a woman connected to this project that I have met. The women in my family, included, um, they were influenced by her spirit. Really, that she was somebody who really resonated so strongly with the people of Haiti, and she had an impact on so many lives. And um, so, it it feels wonderful. You know, I've been thinking about since last Saturday the best way to um, honor her. Obviously, I was already including some of her music in the project, but I'm thinking of a, of a strong way to be able to honor her, not only at the show here in March, but um, certainly to honor her legacy going forward, because I think that I was given a great gift in being able to meet her. Well, I feel like we've been given a
0: gift in meeting you <laughs> and meeting her through you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. i um,
0: we'll just ask you one more question, and then I, I think we get to hear some more of your music. Yeah. Um, just We've been talking around this the whole time, but You know, you think about right now, you know, what, um, and actually think in generational time, which is what you're doing, Mm -hmm. which I think is what we all have to do. Um, you know, what, what makes you despair and, and what gives you hope?
1: What makes me despair, I think, is in, this is, complicated answer I think or complicated question for me but I think at the end of the night um, when I go to bed what makes me worried about the future is something that I know is very important to both of my parents um, and that's a lack of education or a desire for people to restrict access to education to me is the biggest assault on any um, Society, really. I think to make sure that our children are educated, to make sure that the next generation is smarter and stronger than we are, and to make sure that we all spend every day continuing to learn about the world, about one another, um, is of critical importance um, for the future of this planet. And so Small attacks and big attacks on education is a thing that makes me despair. What's the other side? What gives you hope? Hope. (laughs) I was in such despair for a moment. (laughs) Um, What gives me hope? um, I think what gives me great hope is the continued... um, connection to love and loving one another. I think that our ability to love, to really go back to the beginning of this conversation, is something that is truly innate in all of us. I think we are all born with the ability to love one another and to receive love is one of the biggest gifts I think more better than any it's a better feeling to me than anything else um, and that people are interested in continuing to learn to love one another um, and hopefully from this conversation joining in the Haitian spirit of finding a way each day to give love to someone you know who needs it um, is something that does give me hope that we're all going to make it through somehow. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I am going to depart this stage and leave okay. it to you.
1: OK, you got it. <laughs> I'm a little taller than I was the (laughs) sound (laughs) check. So, hello. Hi. Um, Am I allowed to talk to you guys during this? This Is this supposed to be formal? Good. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, So, about half of the show in March, March 14th, Amsterdam Burn Hall, St. Paul. Um, uh, about half of the show is going to be um, arrangements of some of the women that I've um, been able to research and also meet through this process. Uh, and then about half of the music is original. Um, when I... Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, my grandmother actually passed away a couple of years ago. And um, in the last few years of her life, I really wanted to be able to record and capture her voice, mostly as a gift to myself, as a way of remembering her and... I don't know. There's something amazing about... I know people who do that to sort of like save voice messages from people and stuff. You just want to be able to hear someone's voice later. So I made these recordings and um, I wanted to be able to incorporate her voice into this project because she's, of course, one of the most important Haitian women to me. Um, And in July, when I was in Haiti, I had the great pleasure of um, recording my hometown um, girls choir. And they have managed to make their way into this project as well. So um, most of the original music actually now in- incorporates the voices of um, real women and soon-to-be women <laughs> in Haiti. And that feels very special to me because it goes back to the sort of, uh, hist- the, for me, the historical impetus for really wanting to dive into this project. Um, this first song that I'm going to um, perform for you is one that's named after my grandmother Madame Bellegarde, and um, it does incorporate her voice it's a song that she used to sing sort of casually every once in a while Um, and in the song she says that she is a person who is judged here on earth she's sort of judged by people around but um, she knows that She's not judged by the higher being and that when the time comes, she won't be judged. I do like to think that um, she's right about that. So she's going to join me in singing this song for you, Madame Bogard.
3: Madame Bellegarde condamnée, oui, les condamnés. Madame Belgarde condamnée, oui, les condamnés. Des condamnées, devant péchés, elle va condamner les vents Madame Belgarde condamnée, oui, des condamnées. Madame Belgarde condamnée, oui, ni condamnée, ni condamnée devant Père ni pas condamnée devant bon Dieu.
1: So I have just a couple of short ones for you uh, involving incorporating the girls choir. Moving this a little closer to me. Um, So what was amazing to me about finding the girls choir um, was that I don't think I knew how much of an impact they would have on this project. I was able to attend a rehearsal and then their performance, which was a Sunday church service. Um, Much of Haiti is Roman Catholic, and so it's a a Catholic church service. And for me as a classical musician, when I think of church music, I think of something very formal. I think of, you know, an organ or a keyboard and um, Latin and all those different parts of a mass that you think of. And Of course, there is not an organ or piano probably anywhere in downtown Haiti. (laughs) So when I arrived at the church service to find that the accompaniment for um, the choir was actually a drummer, a lone drummer. And the rhythms that he was using in the service were, at the time, for me, like it was mind-blowing because I was like, wow, these are these drum rhythms that I've been learning about, these drum rhythms that come from a long history of music uh, in West Africa and um, that mean something very specific and are deeply connected to spirituality and voodoo culture. To have that, (laughs) um, that sense of spirituality connected in such a unique way in a space, a spiritual space that was meant for something very different and for a very different God um, was incredible to me at the time. Uh, It also made for like a very fun church experience that I'm regretful that I hadn't really experienced up to that point, but um, something about that was special that here we were in a church, worshiping a very different God, but that these people, my people here in my hometown, um, where my where my father grew up, can't separate themselves from our history, and that this piece of Africa has come so far, and I don't think is going anywhere. Um, and so I wanted to use a lot of that uh, in these pieces coming up so what you hear is um, my sort of experimenting with some of the recordings uh, including the drummer and the girls choir Uh, so it's sort of a little suite of three pieces
3: Mon Seigneur mon roi, je t'ai tant cherché dans la nuit, et moi tu m'as dit que tu étais la vie. Alors je chante Is she, she
1: just one more for you, Uh, and I actually like to end on it because the title of this one is called reservoir Lee," and it's about giving gifts, giving gifts to one another, giving gifts of yourself um, to this world, and so I I do hope that tonight you accept this gift of music, um, and I thank you all so, so much for being with me this evening.
3: approcher du vent